Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg. I'm with my co-host, A.B. Katz. A.B., what's up, man? It's great to be here. Today we have our very special guest, Josh Elman. Josh, how are you doing? Doing great. Excellent, Josh. Thank you for being here. For those who don't know Josh, and I'm sure there are very few, Josh is currently a partner at Greylock Partners. He has been a product manager previously for almost 15 years at places like Zazzle, Real Player, and places you, you haven't heard of like Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So, Josh, walk us through the process of how you joined Greylock. So, I joined Greylock a little over five years ago. You know, I had known two of the leading partners, Reed Hoffman and David Z, from when I was at LinkedIn back in 2004 and five. And I'd actually, you know, stayed in touch with them, like I recommend a lot of people do with people who are kind of in VC roles. You know, I'd gotten breakfast or coffee with both David and Reed probably every year, and it was just kind of a catch up on my life. You know, I'd learn what they were into and excited. I'd always go and try to share with them a couple of interesting startups or products or new platforms that I was seeing. So I think you always want to share some of them. And so we just managed to stay in touch. You know, occasionally folks at Greylock could reach out to me about jobs at some of their portfolio companies. You know, I obviously worked at Facebook, which was a portfolio company of, of Greylock. And I interacted with David quite a bit as we we're building out the Facebook platform. You know, so I'd gotten to know them over the years and, and obviously had worked for Reed at LinkedIn. And so I just always really looked up to Greylock as the firm that I thought were people who were product operators, people I really, really wanted to be a part of. I was working at Twitter. You know, I was asked to resign in July of 2011. You know, technically you could say I got fired. And in July of 2011, you know, as part of this whole regime change, Jeff Williams had been asked to leave the, the fall before that. Jack Dorsey had come back in to run product. And so I'm like, oh, man, I'm no longer working at Twitter. What do I want to do? And I was really stuck. I, at that point, had worked at LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, which were all, I think, going to go public in the coming years. I was super excited about what I'd done there, but I'd also figured out, like, maybe there's a reason that I'm no longer at these companies, and maybe I need to take a reset in my life and my career and kind of figure out where I'm going to go. I was 36 at the time and, and figure out where I'm going to go kind of for the next wave of my career. I thought maybe some of the stuff that got me to those companies would make me useful to come into venture capital. Because I found them early, I worked through some really interesting, tough phases in each of those companies. And so I decided at that point I wanted to go try to get a venture capital job. And, and I figured it was going to be more of a principal type of job where I wasn't going to be an investing partner, but might have a chance if I proved myself really well. And most likely was going to go back and work you know, after a couple of years, but thought the couple of years in venture capital, helping Greylock do good deals, find good deals... And figuring myself out and meeting a lot of great founders, I'd be ready to go and, and do something else. And, and I got super lucky that Greylock felt the same way, and they decided to bring me on as a as a principal. That's, that's and awesome. that's where I started five years ago. And and when you joined Greylock, it sounds like your inclination was more. This is most likely a, a couple year stint. At what point did that transition to you know, hey, I can see myself making a career out of this? Yeah. Well. Look, you know, I'll be honest, when I joined, I, I dreamed of maybe I could become a partner. But I think becoming a partner at a venture capital firm, I mean, you have to be able to go find the best deals and actually win them and convince an amazing founder that they want 
you to be the person who leads the investment, joins your board, works with them for the next you know five or ten years to build a company. And and I just thought you know it's super competitive. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to compete at the level I'd want to, to to be a partner. So I was kind of hedging my bets. I was like, look, if I could become a partner, great. But but most likely I'll figure out it's competitive and and not sure I'll be a fit and I'll go back to industry. A couple of years in, you know, I just really started to realize that my set of experiences, having seen the early days of some of these companies, you know, was was helping me engage with people going through similar phases in a way that I felt like a lot of other investors weren't able to. And I was really building relationships I thought were great. And I was being able to surface interesting companies to Greylock. And in fact, there were cases where the people that I was surfacing were as excited to work with me as anybody else at Greylock or even some other VC firms. And so I thought, huh, maybe I can give this a go. And the Greylock guy said, hey, why don't you stick around and maybe we'll let you lead some investments and see where it goes from there. And at that point, I said, you know what, I've got a chance to be part of this partnership with guys I've learn from and respect. I'm going to take that chance and, and go try to see what I can do. Being at a firm that has, you know, such big names like like David and Reed and, and some of the other players there, how have you thought about making a name for yourself at, at Greylock and Adventure? And it seems that you've taken sort of like a blitz approach of, you know, hosting events, being at events, writing a lot of content, knowing everybody. What do you think has had sort of the been like the highest leverage activity for you to, to get to where you are right now? You know, it's a great question. At the end of the day, it's finding really good people and getting to know them one-on-one and convincing them that you want to lead the investment and that they want to be able to work with you. And that's not about brand building and reputation. That's truly just about deep one-on-one relationships. And then also being able to leverage relationships from past experiences and previous lives. It turns out with just about every investment I've made, there have been ties that, that have gone through my whole career, whether it's people I work with like you know Evan Biz, I'm, a, I'm an investor in both of their companies, I've worked with them at Twitter, you know, as well as just people who I'd worked with when I was at Facebook or LinkedIn or Zazzle, who are very, very close to the founders of these new companies and they introduced me. And there's just a sense of credibility and reputation that goes on much more than that. You know, but beyond that, I've also found that I just have been through a lot of experiences in my career and I've really enjoyed giving back and and sharing some of what I've learned in hopes that I can help more people, um, you know, not do, at least not make the same mistakes I did as they're learning and going through their journeys and can think about things in new ways. So that's gotten me into blogging a lot more and speaking. Mm -hmm. And again, just trying to, to share those learnings. I don't try to like pontificate about the future as much as, as really just doing case studies on like, here's how we approach a problem. Here's how we got through it. Here's how I'm thinking about this situation for what's coming next. What would the Josh of 2016 tell the Josh of, of 2011 as an investor? And I'm curious, you know, AB's a principal at August, you know, in somewhat similar situation. I'm curious what you tell him. I'm obviously learning as, a, as an investor. Thoughts on that? The number one thing is you have to be able to give value to people that you're interacting with all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the value isn't, hey, let me choose whether or not I'm go- like the meeting. Sorry, is not. Let me choose whether or not I'm going to invest in you. It's. I really think of it as a job interview, where every time I'm meeting somebody, they are interviewing me to see if they, if I am somebody that they would want to be a part of their company, would actually be willing to sell me a part of their company in order to be involved with it full time. I think when you flip the table like that, and and just you know when I just tell myself that. You change the way you think of founders. I mean, at the end of the day, 
founders are doing incredibly hard work to go build a company. We as investors get the privilege to give them to to buy a piece of their company and get the privilege to help them on their journey. I think you can't forget that. The other thing that I would tell myself, or there's two other things. One is every decision is super duper hard and there's no slam dunks. And you have to find those cases. David Z likes to say is you have to find these cases where it's 5149 and you finally get to the 51% that you want to do it, and then you do it. There's never any like, oh man, I'm 100% in. And if it is, then it comes to price, and then you're at like, do I want to invest at this price? Because there's always something that makes you there. And so it's okay to go with that uncertainty and find the things that tip you over, not looking for all the reasons something will fail, because you know, by default, most things you know won't make it through. And then the last thing is, you just got to, you know, you're not going to win them all. And like, that is a super hard lesson that kills me every time I learn it. And you just have to pick the journeys you really want to be on and get on enough great journeys and you'll be in great shape. And you can't just always rue the ones that, that you didn't win because there will always be more journeys. You were saying how a lot of investment decisions are very close. And, you know, there's a, a big track record of, of a lot of the best investment decisions being confrontational within a partnership. Have there been any decisions that were the opposite of that, that, you know, you had close to 100% conviction? No, I mean, I think every single decision that I've done has been one of these where I could go either way at the very last minute and decide to do it or not decide to do it. And it's always like, oh, it's too high a price or, you know, it's not there. Probably the one I was most confident in that we've done is is Medium and the opportunity to go work with yeah. Ev Williams again to kind of build the future of publishing. That was probably the one where I was like, I, I really would just, I, I'd work for Ev. I know how he builds a company and really want to go be a part of it. But but all of them, you know, but, the, but at that one, we, we paid a premium price to get involved. So there's always some tension for like, is this going to be a good enough investment to return our money? I think that's fine. I think once you're in, you're in and, and you're, you're committed. What's the transition from, you know, you working for Ev to now you're on his board? What, what's sort of that role reversal like? You know, I don't think of it as role reversal at all. People talk about venture as like the other side of the table. And I think of it as like, as I said, this constant job interview process just to get on the same side of the table with somebody. You know, with Ev, I joined the company that he was running at Twitter to help him achieve his massive vision. With Medium, I joined the company that he's running to invested a bunch of money in his company to help him achieve his massive vision. So I don't see it as that different. I'm still in a support role. I just now help it more more of the strategic levels rather than doing day-to-day work. Let's talk about winning deals. Reed likes to say, you know, venture is, at least at seed, it's it's seeing deals, it's picking deals, and it's, it's winning deals. You've won a lot of competitive deals. Let's talk about deals that you haven't won. One of the things, you know, this is sort of rumors, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't know to what extent it's true, but one of the things I've heard is that you discovered Snapchat early before you were a partner, and then there was some tension around going for it right away. Can you talk about a little bit the process of, in your mind, could you have done to to win that deal, or just or maybe you could pick a different company? Like, what happens when you don't win, and how do you think about, you know, winning deals when you're going head-to-head against, you know, Sequoia or Benchmark or some of these other, you know, also top-notch firms? Yeah, look, it's a it's a great question. You know, Snapchat is certainly one that got away from me and that I was super excited about it early and, and got to know the team. And it got really close to the team for a, for at least a short period of time where, where I just thought, you know, we could have, you know, they were at a stage that was very similar to stages I'd been at with other companies and thought it would have been a really a lot of fun to, to help them through it. And I think we, we connected. But 
you know, you can't always win every day. And it's a combination of like, you see it, you get your entire partnership to believe in it. You make sure that the founding team knows that your entire partnership Mm -hmm. is ready to commit a lot of money and commit a lot of resources. There's all kinds of dynamics that come into play. And everybody is wooing a founder at this time. Everybody's kind of like putting their best foot forward. It's like everybody's trying to like woo that that one. And what's your sell? What's your sell? When you're going head to head against Sequoia, like what's your sell? Like what do you tell the Yik Yak founders or another like group of founders, like what do you tell them? Don't take Sequoia's money. Take take my money. What do you say? Look, I, I never try to say like don't do this or not. I say look, there's a lot of great options that you can pick. Here's the reasons why I think we can uniquely help you. Here are the people that we've worked with. Here's how we support people through all the ups and downs. And here's how we can really be a a product and an iterative brainstorming partner for you in ways that I think most other people haven't because they haven't been through the throes of how do you build organic distribution, organic network effects through your products with like you know guys like Reed and I have just done multiple times in our careers and really seen it at that super intrinsic early product level. And so that's that's really what we say is look if you want a partner who you can call it all hours and brainstorm through things like that, you know, and work through it. You know, I think we can do that better than anybody else. You know, and then in terms of us being able to help you recruit, bring in the right executives, we have an incredible team that does that, connect you with all the right people at all the right companies. We obviously can reach pretty much anybody. Those things, though, I feel like are a little bit more table stakes. And it's really the you and I want to work together to to go build this together. and, And I'm game. I'm really excited, too. And when you're going through processes like that, you know, to, to what extent do you think it's the individual partner? And to what extent do you think it's the the firm and the, the reputation and, and resources of the firm outside of the, the individual? Look, I think it's the majority of it is ends up being the individual partner because that's the person who's actually joining the board, who's in the boardroom, who's doing the right, you know, right. 7 a.m. texting, the 11 p.m. calls. And so, so it really is that. I think the firm and and knowing that that partner has the full support of the firm and you'll have access to all the other resources the firm provides is important too. And I think if you don't get – if you like meet a partner and spend a lot of time with a partner and then you're like, I don't even know if the firm has this guy's back or this woman's back. I don't know if they're going to actually really support me or they're just letting this person kind of do it on on a limb. Then you feel a lot more nervous. But as long as you feel like you have the full firm support it really comes down to the individual partner. Right. <clears throat> Let's talk about when you're investing. Walk us through Meerkat. I mean, Meerkat to House Party is one of the, the you know most inspiring stories of the last of the last year. You invested right on that South by Southwest wave. I, I, you know, I remember being there. Did you see the pivot coming? And, and how have you, you and Ben you know, worked on the House Party evolution? Just walk us through that story. It's a great question. So, look, I've been excited about live video for my entire career. My first right. job was at Real, Real Networks doing Real Player, which was live audio and video on the internet. I was a fairly active advisor to Ustream in kind of the, the late 2000s when they were pioneering a lot of web streaming video. I remember you so, got a check in the mail like 10 years later, right? Yeah, and so mobile, when mobile live video started happening, I started sensing it 2014, was like waiting for something to pop. And I actually met Ben when he was building a product called Gavo, and every time Ben would come over from Israel, we'd hang out and have a good conversation about live video. And I wouldn't be ready to invest in Gavo, but I certainly liked Ben, and I, I loved his vision. And he then started pivoting to a product called Air and Meerkat, 
and I played with Air, and again, wasn't sure it was going to break out, but but loved Ben and just loved the way he talked about where live video needed to go. He named his company Life on Air, by mm. the way, which right. you know, it's like pretty apropos that it wasn't a specific product. When Meerkat popped, I knew Twitter had bought Periscope, but I believed that 2015 was going to be the year of mobile live, you know, one-to-many video. And just said, man, I really want to get involved and told Ben, look, I'll, I'll do the deal. And, and you won that deal. That was a competitive deal. Well, we actually signed the term sheet before South by Southwest. Wow. You know, I, don't, I don't know what other firms, you know, he, he might have talked to one or two other firms too. But, you know, I got my partnership all fired up and, and we got it done. And, you know, even before South by. And, and we went to South by and it was great. And then I knew Periscope was coming. Twitter then cut off Meerkat and Facebook comes out. And at the same time, Ben was seeing this trend where two things were really happening in Meerkat. One is when somebody went on with a bunch of their friends, we thought the experience was pretty magical. You'd be hanging out with people that you know. Like it was kind of like a live party room and you were actually having this live moment together that we weren't really having online in other ways. You know, most of what we're doing is like sharing a picture and looking at each other's pictures later. And so Meerkat was having these live moments. And the second thing was he was like, but nobody keeps going on to Meerkat. People aren't broadcasting consistently. They go on, they have these moments, they get spooked by kind of random audience. Celebrities aren't doing it that often. We haven't found this repeat habit and Ben talks a lot about habit. And so when Facebook came out with their own live video, even a lot of the celebrities and influencers who were actively using Meerkat started migrating to Facebook, and we went down from there, and we're like, look, we could compete against Twitter, but I don't think we can compete against Twitter and Facebook. I want to do something radically different. I have this idea for house for this product that I think he used the name House Party even right at the very beginning that creates this group chat experience that's live with your friends. It's always on pings people to tell them, you know, that that you're available to, to hang out, you're in the room, basically. And so he kind of had this vision, and what we said was, look, Ben, like, there's a lot more you could still do with Meerkat. We could add money, we could, you know, to the you know, payments and processing, which you've seen in, like, the Chinese players. We can find new communities who will do it. But if you really believe in this, go prototype it. And, and we as a board really supported Ben to kind of explore and prototype it. I think at a time when a lot of investors might have been like clamoring to ask for their money back, but right. like that was never a consideration. This was Ben who started the company Life on Air. Meerkat was already a pivot, and the idea that he had a new notion from the kernels of what we really learned from Meerkat were great. And so we started building it, and we kind of every quarter gave him some milestones. We're like, prove that you can kind of build a prototype that works. Prove that you can get it into some people's hands. Prove that we can really make it valuable to, to people where they keep using it. Prove that we can start to get distribution. And then and then in May, it busted out and started blowing up and hit number two in the App Store and then fell over and just wasn't able to scale at all. And so we said, prove that we can build something that can actually scale. Spent all summer, a couple of uh, friends of mine who had worked with at Twitter came and joined the company to help us kind of fix a bunch of the issues. And... Boom, by the fall, we had it scaled, and a lot of the stuff Ben had proved over the year all came together and have, you know, what is just, you know, right now is a pretty incredible phenomenon. But it's been a, a year-long journey of constantly hitting these milestones in order to do it, which I think has been, it's been great. Going back to when you first met Ben before Meerkat even launched, what was it about him that made him someone that you wanted to spend time with? I really get enchanted by great founders who have a vision of the future five, seven years ahead 
and can talk about why the ingredients are right now that we're going to be able to build this company that will achieve this amazing thing five or seven years. You think Reed is sort of like that too, right? Oh, Reed. Reed was the epitome of this. Like when I met him in 2003 at LinkedIn, he said, here's how we're going to build a social network for professionals. It's going to solve jobs and sales and recruiting and hiring and the way you're going to be a get expertise and, and learn as a as a professional. Did you and see social too then in 2003, 2004? Did you, did you also predict the, the wave of social? You know, I, I certainly believed in it. Um, a buddy of mine, at, I was at business school for one semester, wrote a point counterpoint about social networking. We both really believed that like this formation of users' identities online was going to change how we navigated our communities and our networks radically. And yeah, that's what prompted me to go even apply to LinkedIn and end up dropping out of business school when I got an opportunity to join LinkedIn. So, so believed it back then. But, but back to AB's question, have always believed in those people who paint that picture. And, and being a visionary is one thing, but then they tie it to real pragmatism. They tie it to why now we can build this one thing that gets us one step towards that journey. And if we build this, then we'll get to build this, and then we'll get to build this. And so somebody who's able to break down this vision into very discrete steps and where I kind of like buy the steps and I buy that you can sort of measure yourself by whether you've accomplished each one of those steps is sort of the combination that gets me every time. So 13 years later from when you're in you know, business school and you predict, you know, you predict uh, social and you ride the wave of Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, now you're an investor you know, and you do a lot of consumer social. Where is the white space in, in consumer social and, and what do you sort of understand or predict that other people you know, don't, don't necessarily understand? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, and look, I'm not sure there's as much white space as there was 13 years ago. We have a $350 billion company or whatever in Facebook that is – touching a billion people every day, much more when you include Instagram and, and WhatsApp in there about how we connect with the people around us, let alone Twitter and Snapchat and everything else. So it's definitely not as in, in LinkedIn and, and its professional network. So it's not as much white space. But I think you know now you basically look at the world today and say, what's missing? What do we still want or what do we want more of? And this is part of what's led me to live is this realization that that we've done such a good job creating the way for me to share and capture any moment and broadcast it out to other people that they interact with later. I'm not sure we're actually connecting as deeply as we think we are. You know, when I am sitting on my couch looking at you at a nightclub, that's sort of a weird gap where I'm like, oh, I'm kind of bored, man. Eric's having a lot of we fun. Went to a, a and, weird place. <laughs> no, but it, 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 there's, there's a benefit of being in, in person that the internet hasn't fully captured and, and live is part of that. Like, what does that look like, you know, years down the road? Things like Skype have been around, you know, th- things like uh, House Party are adding presence. Like, do you think it'll be even more more like being in person or how, how does that? And how, how does that affect where you, what you want to invest in? Yeah, so I've been looking a lot at what are these spaces that bring us together that we actually can kind of interact in these live ways. That, that that's part of what got me really excited about Discord and how it becomes this connective tissue for when we're playing these live MMO games. Discord becomes the communication channel the, that we all go spend time in together while we're playing these great games. Or what led me to Meerkat and now House Party around how we actually do this live connecting. I think that that's going to create all kinds of new opportunities where we're going to have choices of whether we go out in the real world or we like jack into whether it's virtual reality or just our phones to have these much more live connections. 
things like Skype and the telephone have been around for a long time, but that's like a call. That's not hanging out. That's not creating presence. It, it's become to feel more like a burden than a joy to connect over Skype. Look at us. We had to schedule a call right. in order to do this. And that's not how we really want to live our lives in a little bit more of a fluid way. Um, I also think there's going to be a lot more things in social that are going to push us back out into the real world. I looked at what Pokemon Go did last summer to get people out in the real world, walking around, interacting with each other, doing things. And I think that was the game but I think there was a lot intrinsic in that behavior mm -hmm. that can become a much richer platform to actually have us out in the world together doing things, you know, going out on a Friday night instead of sitting at home, even though we do have these live moments and live things we can do together. Let's talk about how you look to – when you look to invest. Like what sort of metrics or what sort of signs or, or things do you need to be – You know, I, I know a lot of people send you a lot of things. When is something like really exciting for you from, a, from an investment? Like what do you most care about? Like when, when we really lead a venture investment and, and I'm ready to join the board, we're writing, you know, five, ten, maybe sometimes, you know, twenty million dollars, you know, we're looking for something that, that I say it's working in pockets. And it doesn't need to be working at scale, but where you go to some community where you have people who are very deeply using the product on a very, very frequent basis. And there's like I like to call it like a cluster of people who are actually doing it together. And then the real investment bet is if you can figure out how to get some clusters on, we can figure out how to get a lot more clusters of people onto the product. And so when I make investments in that mode, and Discord was certainly there with its community and gaming, Musical.ly was there with the people who were, who were creating and sharing the music videos, um, House Party is certainly there right now, where I really see like these people are already using the product in a really meaningful way. You know, sometimes we'll also just make a big bet on a space where we think somebody can go figure that out, like when we bet on on Jelly or Operator behind a founder who we know well. But I think, you know, in general, the best time for me is when I'm meeting somebody who, who really just says, hey, look, I think I've got it working in a couple pockets. I really want to get this to 10x, 20x, 100x scale. How do we go do that? And when you say working in pockets... Are there specific metrics that stand out for you, or is it really case by case? You know, it's generally case by case. What I really, what I like to look for is is retained and sticky users. So, how many people who started using the product are still using it multiple times a week, three weeks later? And by the way, I don't care if every other user who tried the product isn't using it at all. If you're retaining chunks of people who are still using it, you know, the product religiously three weeks later, four weeks later, you know, two months, months later, <laughs> like then you have something. There's been a subset of apps that have had pretty strong engagement with you know certain audiences, but haven't found a way to go really broad, especially the anonymous category comes to mind. Do you think that changes in the anonymous category? And, and do you think there's other things that when, when it appeals to a pocket, how, how do you think about you know, does this appeal to, you know, 100 million plus people type audience that you might need to build a, a really big consumer business? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Like, I think, I think the other factor that I like to think about a lot with any product is how do people extend their relationship with it over time? How does it become even more important in their lives the more that they use it? You know, something like Dropbox is just a great example. You throw some files in, 
Then you throw more. Then you throw more. And now all of a sudden, your life's on Dropbox or like Evernote. And I'm just using those as like a, a good canonical example. Social networks are the same way. The more friends you add, the more you communicate there, the more it just becomes this place that's imbued with all this feeling and emotion. And this is where you talk. And why do I need somewhere else to post it? Because I can just post something on Facebook and all my friends will see it. And, and so we like to think about like how does products grow over time? One of the challenges I had with the anonymous space, and I looked hard and, and really excitedly at a lot of the companies that were getting real traction a couple of years ago in, in anonymity and never could quite get my head around how these products grow with us over time. Um, and that was, that was sort of one of those things that I think I missed in that category that I have seen in other ones. Do you think someone's going to make it work in the anonymous category? I don't know. I worry structurally that with anonymity, what happens is you join it today, you have a bunch of really amazing experiences. A lot of information comes to light that wasn't otherwise. You know, some awful, you know, gossip and, right. and slander against people. But, but even ignoring that, I think there's some real value that comes from these anonymous systems. I think the problem is three weeks later, three months later, you go back to the product and it's like starting fresh every day. It's like Groundhog Day. And like it ends up becoming the same recycled jokes or the same recycled content and not having this renewed sense of commitment and growing together with the platform. And so I feel like I don't know how they structurally get past that, even though whenever these things do, do come out, they, they light up and they, a lot of people interact with them in interesting ways quickly. Right. I mean, it's interesting. People, the sort of the question people have about Yik Yak is, is did they just make a mistake or is it a structural problem? And if, if the pro- product was structured differently, like, you know, AB and I'm talking like, could there be an enterprise version of a, of a secret or, or Yik, like what, what's the, something that could work there? Yeah. I just worry that, you know, as human beings, like, you know, we build relationships over time and every interaction we have kind of extends our relationship. And so it compounds and, and we love this connective tissue of our relationships back to our, our, our past. That's part of what makes us humans. We like meeting new people too, but when you think of social networks, what's powerful is they extend those relationships. When you think of anonymous systems, they don't. And so I worry that they're all fun for a while. You know, Balaji, More like a game than a yeah. system of record. I wonder, like, Balaji had this tweet storm a few months ago where he talked about, like, unbundling identity and basically yeah. us having, like, multiple names. And I wonder, I wonder if there is sort of a pseudo anonymity that people, there is some accountability, but also, you know, freedom to say things that you wouldn't, you know, say under your normal name. But uh, I, I think there is something important there that still is not tapped in social, which is how do you find these other important communities that you're passionate about and letting you really connect with them and be with them on a frequent basis. And it doesn't matter whether or not it's your real name or not. Like, I'm a huge Seattle Seahawks fan, and I just feel like I never quite have the space where I can just, like, let loose and talk about, like, Russell Wilson and the Seahawks defense and just, like, (laughs) go off with people who will totally share that with me. And it's awesome when I get that experience. And that's a part of the thing that I love to emote about that I just can't – haven't found and had a community that makes that really easy to find and interact with online. We both invested in islands. And I think Greg Eisenberg's company – and I think that's where you think it could potentially happen? What what does he need to do to make that work? This is why I love our discovery fund where we can occasionally put in, you know, 50K checks, you know, into companies like Greg's that are like super early, but 
when I meet the founder, I'm captivated by the vision, even if I don't yet see the traction momentum. And Greg certainly is one of those trying to figure out, like, how do I build these safe spaces for you to hang out with people of like mind and interact with about that topic? And when you want to talk about a different topic, you go to a different space, as opposed to my same friends all the time, and they're like, shut up about the Seahawks, Josh. <laughs> oh, good old Twitter. Uh, with, with Discovery Fund, you know, the main fund's a, a billion-plus yeah. fund. What are the, the goals of doing these 50K checks, and, and how do you manage it from a, a time perspective? What's that trade-off? It's a, it's a great question. So, so look, our, our overall fund is a billion-dollar fund. Discovery Fund is sort of a little carved-out portion of that. The idea really is, is a lot of us would be angel investors on the side if we weren't venture capitalists. And so there's a real joy in being involved in something early and in getting to help founders even at that stage, even though that's not the best way for us to return capital to our RLPs, which is by writing these much larger checks. And so we found that Discovery Fund is a way where we can you know, commit to somebody that, hey, we're involved. And I think of it more like pull than push. Like I encourage the founders who we invest in to reach out to me whenever they need to talk about an issue or a problem or want feedback on something, and I'm there to give it, whether it's a phone call or a quick meeting and update or a long email exchange around a deck or a new feature to go check out. You know, I try to do that all the time. Now, I would do that for early stage founders anyway that I like and am getting to know. But I find that when we invest a little bit, it kind of changes the conversation where they're like, ah, should I call that Josh guy? He seemed like a nice VC to like, damn it, that guy's on my cap table. He better respond. <laughs> and, 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 and so I just love it. And, you know, you can ask the people that we've, in, we've invested Discovery Fund in, like, I try to do as much as I can for them. I'm not on the phone with them every day talking about every issue. You know, I probably talk to each of my main portfolio CEOs, almost every one of them every week, you know, and it floats in and out, whether that's an in-person board meeting or a phone call or just a one-on-one meeting or, you know, a set of text messages. Whereas with the Discovery Fund companies, it's a little bit lighter, but I try to be there whenever they ask. And, you know, occasionally I'll nudge if I haven't heard for a while. And can you talk about any other discovery investments you've made and just in general your thought process? Are you sort of you know, taking moonshot bets with the discovery or is it, you know, thematic? Is it founder-based or is it the same? How do you think about it? I, I like to think about it as, hey, if I met this founder or saw this founder and they came to me with something that was working in the way that I think this idea can be working, would I want to lead the Series A or Series B? And if the answer to that is yes – and I have some, like, and there's a strong lead coming into the round, and I have, you generally have some other relationship or connectivity to the founder, either directly or through people who know us both really well, you know, we'll sometimes do it. I do it pretty rarely, like, at most one every month or two, but like, you know, so like five or six a year, but it's not, it's not that frequent. Um, but it really comes down to the, like, would I lead a Series A if I saw this exact same pitch with a great set of retained users in pockets that I believe was about to really break out. When those companies then come up for Series A, hopefully they're in a position where you want to lead it, but you know, should they not have sufficient traction or whatever other reason, you, you don't do that many deals. Do you think that signaling risk is a, a real thing? And, and how, how do you recommend your discovery uh, fund companies to, to sort of handle that in the best way? You know, look, uh, I think, too, I think there's always a, a set of whenever you're going out to raise, there's going to be people who are excited and people who aren't. 
and it doesn't matter whether or not they're investors before. And hopefully you've been building relationships with lots of people, independent of whether or not they've actually invested. Part of the reason we do such a small investment of 50K is we don't own a meaningful piece of the company so that nobody is like, hey, they own 10% of you know, right. original seed rounds. Like we're owning like 10% of a company. If you own 10% of a company and then you're like, oh, that's it. I'm not going to invest more in the company. Like you're kind of leaving the company high and dry. When you've only invested 50K, people don't kind of assume that you're just a given commitment, you know, if not. That's sort of in general how I have how I felt about it. You know, we, I've seen plenty of companies we've given some seed money to raise right. money from other great people. I've seen plenty struggle to raise, totally independent of the fact that we're not the partner to, to lead the next round. So I don't think that the signal has been, oh man, well, if Greylock doesn't want to do it, then I don't want to do it. You know, you've been doing this for five years. You, you've hit some great deals. What's a deal that you that you totally missed, that you didn't see coming, that you could have gone after, or was in your inbox, but just didn't see it working or taking off, and, and then it just did? Man, that's a great question. You know, a, a, a recent deal that, that got done, Peter Fenton announced an investment in a company called Zenly. And, and Peter's one of the best investors and just somebody who I just deeply admire his instincts. He was obviously an early investor in Twitter and just you know had incredible foresight for what Twitter would become. And when he invested in Zenly, you know, I just looked at myself and I was like, I wonder how we missed that and like what his instincts are firing that mine totally weren't. Because it's super impressive what the idea of Zenly is kind of the, the next gen find my friends, really bringing people together again in this tighter way understanding who you're connecting with and who you care about and where they are and where you can go out and be together. Back to like, I'm talking about being together in the real world. And so I really kind of regretted not having pursued that one uh, more actively. You know, it happens to be in France. and I think a lot of the user base is in Europe right now. But that was just something that I think struck me as one that I, I really regret not having dug into more deeply. And, you know, I definitely respect Peter's instincts. You just have to spend more time in Paris like uh, yeah. Peter's done and, you know, <laughs> may end up paying off. That, that, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. But you look at these people like Peter Fenton, like, you know, Jim Gotts. Right now, I think you are the go-to consumer, so, like, the most up-and-coming, the hardest working, like, you're, you're it right now. But these people who've been successful for, you know, decades, you think of them, like, when you think of them, like, what do you need to do to be as good as them? Or even like David Z, in terms of consumer investors, like where do you need to grow as an investor to be the greats, like one of the greats, in, in your opinion? It's amazing how successful a lot of these guys you just mentioned are. Peter, Bill Gurley, um, David Z, Reed, um, Jim Getz, you know, Mike Moritz, obviously, at Sequoia. And I think as you grow, I think the things that I really need to go keep learning and studying are like, how do you keep growing and helping scale a company? How do you get better at helping companies early find the right key three to five people who will really help gel and make a great team for a company? You know, at House Party, we helped place a woman named Seema Sistani, who's now the COO at House Party. And she had been at Tumblr before and she was going to and doing a lot of partnerships. She came over to help with Meerkat and with partnerships. But her meshing with Ben has just made an incredible team mm -hmm. where they together really helped her house party. I think like I really want to get better at like how do I help those founders see around corners, figure out when they need, need to hire the right person or do something crazy and strategic. And, and I think you only gain that with experience and being around company journeys you know, hopefully some that turn out really successful and you learn enough from those patterns of those kind of multi-step 
when do you need to hire somebody, when do you need to upgrade a certain role, when do you need to throw out a partnership that actually isn't working, that I still need to learn and be able to be a better advisor to my founders for. Like, I think right now I'm still really helpful when we get into like deep product and distribution details, but I still have a lot to learn and be able to add even more value in these other things. And I think guys who've been around for a long time, they're just, they've really gained that experience and they're really good at it. You now have a set of companies where, you know, you did a series A or B investment and gotten a lot of great momentum, but there's still a variety of outcomes out there. You know, does the way you engage and help a company change as they, they start to enter a growth phase? And, and what, what's that been like? Every stage of a company is kind of a different journey. And, and you go through and you're like, okay, what people do we need to get through this stage? You know, and, it, and at Discord right now, we're kind of going through the like, okay, wait, you know, it's been a year and a half that the company's been in, in existence, product's been in existence. We have a lot of people using it. How do we stake our reputation to make sure that we're an even more integral part of the overall ecosystem? And what do you need to do to kind of level up from not just building your product, but also thinking about relationships with the other companies in the ecosystem so we can be a good partner to everybody? How do you start looking at the next level of strategic concerns? You know, Amazon bought a competitor of Discords called Curse Mobile that all of a sudden you know makes you say, wait, is Amazon a, and Twitch a friend or foe in the ecosystem? You know, how do you actually deal with those concerns? And that's sort of that next level. And then what kind of team do you need to deal with that? How do you now put in second and third level managers in place? How do you hire the right executive who can actually build an entire organization to run this? And, you know, one of the things we do is we encourage our founders to go meet founders who've been through those journeys before. And I think, you know, me as a board member, I'm learning and talking to a lot of people who've been through those journeys before, including lucky enough to have my partners like Reed and David and John Lilly, et cetera, who've been through them as well, so that we can all kind of learn together, you know, as we keep building the company. On the other hand, like, you can learn as much as you want. Every company is a little bit of a unique story and a unique snowflake, so you can't just, like, do what they did. You have to keep applying all those learnings to your current situation, the current market, and then figuring out how to navigate it, you know, which I really enjoy doing as well. Zooming out a little bit, how does you know someone at Greylock or a partner at a top firm narrow in on a on a focus? You know, you mentioned that there might not be as much white space in, in consumer social. How do you think about other things you might want to invest in? And you know, also asking in the context of you know Sarah Tavel, you know, recently joined Greylock and had this piece about saving time, saving money. I'm curious how people sort of narrow in on you know, investment themes and, and how strict do they have to stick to it? When people talk about me as consumer social, what I really like to think about myself is like. What are products that we spend a meaningful amount of our time and life with on a very frequent basis? And I really like to be in the in the business of building products that people actually use and engage with consistently. And this doesn't just mean it's something that, hey, there's a lot of other people here I can communicate with. I might be, you know, I, I invested in an operator in this idea that we were going to have a shopping assistant that was going to be able to help you every day kind of shot better, find things you were looking for, and you're going to be able to engage with it over messaging. You know, I invested in Jelly, not because Jelly, I thought Jelly was a social network, but I thought Jelly was a simple search engine to solve, you know, you could ask questions and get real answers to. So I'm really looking for those either, like these communication type products like social, or these habitual products that you'll use very, very frequently, because I love being part of building habits. And so I can see it spanning you know, way beyond just what we call, quote, social media or communications into 
health and fitness and wellness and ways that we improve ourselves every day or into banking and finance or into lots of other areas of our life search and finding the right places to go or people to be with that all tie back to these very frequent habits. And that's kind of where I think about and I think about what we aren't solving in our lives that we can solve much better through technology, through platforms, through systems. And then the, the second thing is I started getting excited about hardware and the smart home and the Internet of Things. I invested in a company called Smart Things, actually. It's my very first investment. And I believe that everything mechanical is going to become electronic in the next five or ten years, starting with your thermostat and your lock and your cameras in your home. And the amount of things we're going to build on that are, are pretty phenomenal. And so I'm excited about where that's going as well. Now, when you make an investment in a space that sort of locks you into that space, right? You can't make more investments in that space. How do you think about that in the context of what else could be out there when, when you're making an investment or that hasn't been invented yet? At the end of the day, I don't think anything locks you out from anything else. We want to find the best investment returns for our limited partners. But when we commit to a founder in a journey, we really want to be on their journey and figure out how, everything we can do to make them ultimately the most successful. You know, it doesn't make sense to invest in like, three competing live video products because we can't be as committed right. to helping one of them be successful as trying to be in three. And there's so many opportunities out there that even if you are on a journey and you see something else, you're like, oh, I wonder if that one might work better. There's so many other good opportunities in there. You don't need to be distracting yourself to like be in kind of this competitive space. Because when I go meet a candidate, I'm not like, hey, so you want to do live video? here's my four companies. Which would you like? I, I want to be able to sell you on the one that I bet on that I really believe in the vision. Greylock invested in LinkedIn and Facebook and everybody was like, how can you invest in social right. networking in two different companies? And they're like, LinkedIn and Facebook are different. They're both going to be great businesses. Everybody believes that who's involved with the companies, including me as the investor. So like, why are you asking that question? Read invested in Facebook. <laughs> so yeah. Read invested yeah. in Facebook. So yeah. people overreach. And, and by the yeah. way, look, right now, Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Google, I mean, they're all sort of competing with each other, and they're all different too. So at right. some stage, everybody competes with each other. But it's really hard to say that at the beginning. Have you dealt with any issues around that at all with you know multiple companies doing overlapping things yet? You know, people had some question, even when we invested in Jelly and Oslo, an operator, we were investing in three different things around this idea of conversational commerce. We all felt like they were all very different, but some people thought maybe there's some right. overlap. You know, and I, I'm excited with kind of the direction that each one of those has taken, although it's been a trickier challenge in conversational commerce in the bots world to find any, you know, true deep, um, you know, uh, product, product sort of taking off yet. And, um, and why is that? Like, what, what, has, what needs to pop for it to, that to happen? You know, I think it's a behavior shift, and I think we're earlier than I thought to be ready to be talking to something on the other side that, that we just like, oh, this totally gets me, and I'm ready to go text for all my business needs rather than, hey, I can just get it on my computer and search around for shopping or to find something. You know, I mean, even with Jelly, you know, people are like, well, I can just Google for that. And we're like, no, but don't you understand? You spend 10 minutes Googling and looking at links on your phone and trying to find your damn answer. On Jelly, you ask a question, you put your phone away. 10 minutes later, you get an answer from somebody who knew the answer. That's a much better experience, but people are still in the like, oh, but, but, but if I spend all the time Googling myself, it's, it's much better. You know, and I just think it's going to be a slower, it's a slower behavior change than I thought we might be 
be ready for. Zooming out, maybe we'll close with, with this question. In August, you had this tweet storm about how you uh, spent too much time in your product management career worrying what your job was instead of focus what problems you were solving. And that if you go back, you tell a younger Josh to be, to be more just patient and focus on the work. If you listen to that advice, what would have been different? Well, number one, I probably wouldn't have left LinkedIn or even Facebook, you know, but assuming I got into Facebook. I spent a lot of time early in my career. Yeah, you know, I got promoted pretty quickly at Real Networks and was running kind of a, a big team. And I was maybe five years out of school, you know, and on a flagship product and thought, man, I should just be the guy running the show. This is great. And, yep. and was just sort of overeager. And then the rest of my career, I'd go into a new job and I would do a bunch of great work in the first six or nine months. And then I'd kind of go to my boss and I'd be like, hey, so um, can I get promoted yet? And I wouldn't quite ask it in those words, but I definitely would sort of imply that and, and imply that I wanted it and was going to be unhappy if I didn't get it. And then I would kind of get unhappy in my own head. And I still do work that I'm really, really proud of, but I would also be like, why am I not getting more responsibility? And that would get in my way. And honestly, people around the company don't want to work with you as much when you're like, why am I not getting more responsibility? Because they're like, just do your freaking job right. and do it really well. And so I got sort of a mixed reputation of being somebody who did work, you know, where, where I felt like I worked really hard and I'm very proud of what I did, but also was somebody who was pushing for responsibility sort of ahead of it being fully earned or being ready to grant it. And so people were like, well, I don't necessarily want to work with this guy if he wants to be my boss. And it, and it created a weird dynamic. And, and I screwed this up multiple times. And, and I spent way more time in my career going, why am I not the guy? Instead of just, what do I need to do next? What do I need to do next? And everybody who I've seen achieve amazing results and have massive responsibility at Google, at Facebook, at these companies I deeply respect, didn't do that. They actually did great work. And they kept doing great work and people wanted to work with them, wanted to get their input on things. And over time, the leadership sort of said, whoa, we need you to take on more responsibility because you're already doing it and you've already earned it in the company. And I always sort of asked for it ahead of fully earning it and screwed myself up. And I'm still proud of all the work I did and I managed to find other great jobs and I managed to you know, land here at Greylock. I think I could have done even better and gone even farther if I hadn't screwed some of that up. And what's the equivalent of that in, in VC when you see young people are trying to become partner like really early or what's the equivalent, like what type of great work do they need to do? The negative equivalent of this is somebody who comes into a firm and they're like, can I lead this deal? Can I lead this deal? Can I lead this deal? And always talking about deals that they lead rather than helping the partnership that they're at do great deals. The way you help a partnership do great deals is you find interesting companies, you encourage and push the partners to do those investments. You make very clear thesis on why you think some things will work, others won't. You build great relationships with founders who, when the partnership is doing the deal, the founder says, hey, I'm really excited to work with you, Mr. You know, or Mrs. Partner, but I'm also would love to have this person involved because I right. built a great relationship with them. And so you sort of earn the invitation to be involved, but you don't try to like, I need to do the deal because your job is to help the partnership do the deal when you're sort of early in your career. Or, if, you know, and, and that's sort of how you continue to earn that respect. Cool. Josh, thank you so much. You've been a you know, huge friend and a huge mentor. Appreciate you a ton. Thank you for spending the time with us today for this conversation. Guys, I'm always happy to do it. And uh, thanks for a great set of questions. Awesome. Awesome.